Welcome to the Feeding the Starving Artist podcast. My name is Rick Goodstein, and with me is... Ron McCurdy, once again from the University of Southern California. Go Trojans, finally. <laughs> and I'm coming to you <laughs> from Clemson, South Carolina. Go Tigers. Uh, and with us is a special <laughs> guest artist today, uh, Bill Presky. Bill is a production designer based in L.A. Uh, he's done such um, works as Saved by the Bell, great TV series that my kids loved, The Hangover, The Hangover Part 2, Aquaman, um, uh, Fate of the Furious, etc., etc. So, Bill, thanks for being here with us, and uh, we're excited to continue our conversation. Okay, well, thank you for having me. Absolutely. During a a commercial break, you were talking about some things that we wanted to sort of revisit for just a second. So if you would continue your, your train of thought that we were talking during the break, that would be fantastic, Bill. About, well, what we were talking about is that I think a lot of kids in the arts think there's a certain kind of art kid they have to be. But you can be, I think that what you really need to realize is that just you need to be good at your art, actually, whatever that it might be. But your personality does not have to fit into some like artistic box. And I was referencing that old movie, Fame, um, which is old now, but was new when I was young, younger. And um, it, 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 it chronicled these kids going through a, um, a, a school in New York City, the School for the Arts, where they would take kids in and they would, uh, and they all had a, you know, they had various skills from opera, dance, playing music, uh, musical instruments, from classical to, to jazz, whatever it was. But the kids all thought to fit in personally, they had to become like this kind of kid. This artistic kind of, as my kids would say, thespians or this or that, and they didn't have to do that. They didn't have to, you know. But I, I kind of thought really early on that I could just be who I wanted to be. If I wanted to be the, the kid that liked football, but I was in the theater department, I that was, you know, that's just the way it was going to be. I, I wasn't going to give up on the things that the way I was, my person, the way my thought, my personality was developing and stuff like that. I had a I had a view that I, maybe it was middle class, I don't know, that was very like I wanted to maybe get married someday, have a couple kids, raise a family. None of those things ever came up in school. Nobody ever talked about that kind of stuff. They only talked about, it, you know, how do you get, get ahead and this and that, and how would you get the part, or how would you, you know. So, I mean, those are just, I think it's important that, that, that young people know that it, those things are, they can be who they want to be. They can just let that side of themselves develop naturally and not give in to any kind of peer pressure of the arts. Because the arts is full of peer pressure, too. It definitely is. And you have to know that. It's just like any other group of people. There's peer pressure involved. So that was where we were. Let me change directions here just a little bit, because I was thinking while you were talking about my wife following you on Instagram. And, and I play this game with myself, and it's where in the world is Bill Bresky? Because you're always somewhere exotic looking for a location or doing, I mean, talk a little bit about that part of your job. And I'm just fascinated with about how that works. Well, it's, the, well, it's probably the most, actually, I'm, this class I'm going to teach at UCLA, I'm going to talk a little bit about locations. Because nobody ever really talks about that in the movie and television business. In our business, most I would say 95% of what's actually shot in the movies and television is in a real place. It could be in a real place in the town that they make the movie. It can be down the street from the studio, but it could also be, 
on the other side of the planet. And depending on what people write, it's cheaper maybe to go out to the desert and throw some sand around on a soundstage. So over the years, the way the movie business and television business evolved, it really depends on locations. And locations being restaurants that are closed on weekends or weeknights, and you go and you shoot in to anything you can think of, cars driving past on freeways, to anything, boats out in the ocean. Those things are all, they all have to eventually get a camera, go to someplace to shoot them, even if they're the background plates. Like if they want to show a jungle in the background, they maybe will just shoot a plate. And they, but they got to get a guy in a plane or a girl and they have to fly someplace and they have to go get off the plane and take, set up their camera in the jungle and take a picture. But before they get to do that, they send the production designer because it's his department there first. They say, Bill, we have locations like in Jumanji. We want to go to these crazy like locations where we want some deserts that, that we haven't seen in the movies. So I had the luxury of going out to New, Me New Mexico with a location manager, a person that went there a week before me and found some people and did a little groundwork and said, Bill, there's five places we got to go. And we got in our vehicles and we drove out into the middle of deserts for days and just, just roamed around places nobody ever goes. Or like in Stuart Little, we were going to fly a model airplane over the city in New York. And they said, well, we want to get a picture of like Stuart's little plane flying across the city, but we want to get it from POVs of different buildings. Do you mind going to the top 10 highest buildings in New York City and taking pictures? No, I would love to do that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm going on top of some bridges that we'll get permission from people to go on top of. Yes, I will. So long story short, I'm always going to these crazy places nobody ever gets to go to. Do you want to go underneath Niagara Falls and see what it looks like down there? Do you want to go in a tunnel here? Do you want to go, like in the Hangover movies, do you want to go into Bangkok and find the worst places possible for somebody <laughs> to go? Okay? Yeah. <laughs> right, with the right help, yeah, that's kind of interesting. Do you want to go to, you know, go on the Great Wall of China? Do you want to go, we're going to shoot um, a movie called Forbidden Kingdom that takes place in China. Do you want to go to the Forbidden Kingdom and see and get some pictures of it so we can maybe look and maybe build some of those sets? So you can see where this is going. All the things that we, we bring to our audience in the movies has to be thought out and somebody's got to go to. So I really love that. And I think there's a real art to going on location and work with location managers, you know, and how do we turn how do we turn a, a closed gas station into a restaurant? How do we, because it's on the right corner where you can see a car drive by, how do we do all those kind of things? A lot of locations are chosen based on the story we're telling. And sometimes you have to really break some rules on where you are in terms of to tell that story. And it it's it's a, it makes it so you see the world completely different than anybody else. When I drive down the street, I see buildings that are closed. So that could be a, that could be a restaurant or that you know, that could be this, that could be a castle. Oh, look at that old crazy armory in New York City. That could be some old fort. You know what I mean? So you tend to approach the world from a fantasy. It's like you're a little kid still, you know, and you drive around the car with your parents, you see all kinds of crazy things. The clouds turn into monsters. I still see monsters and clouds and crazy things in buildings and, and 
forests and jungles and stuff. And when I look at it in, in parks, I say, well, you could shoot a, a jungle scene here in Central Park, you know? So you, it's an evolved thing that your brain does. And it's a great part of the movie business that people don't talk about. Like if you're going to go do, um, you know, White Lotus, the last, they, they tend to do those, it, um, those White Lotuses and all these luxury resorts. Well, somebody's got to go to those resorts and check it out and spend some time. And then, <laughs> like when we were doing the hangover, we were, we needed, we were, um, we needed a resort. And we went to about 15 of the top world resorts in Phuket, down, down all the way through Thailand into Malaysia, all the way through Asia on a, on a private plane. We had our jet and we just flew to these different resorts and did that for about six weeks. I mean, that's kind of fun. Sounds like tough work. It, well, it sounds <laughs> it is. I'll tell you where it does become tough work because it's not, it's still a job. Yeah. And you've done it and you come back to the studio, you better come back with a big box of pictures and you better have it organized and you better be intelligent about why you would do it. And you, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it's not just going, it's not just a, it's like anything else. People think, oh, yeah, it's just a party. You just go to some place and you take it. It's not, no, you have to find out all the rules. Why does it work? Where does the company sleep? Where do you park the trucks? A lot of stuff as it goes into a location, you know, simple things like that, that you, most people don't think about. How do you get there? What's the weather like? How much light is there to shoot? Um, what time of year? Why should we be there? Why should we, it's, you know what I mean? There's mm -hmm. a lot that goes that, all that kind of work, which is fun. Let me um, ask a, a different question involving how technology has changed the arts in the past uh, 20 years or so. How, in your world, what, what changes has technology brought to your, to your world? Well, it's brought a lot, okay, obviously. But I would say the biggest thing is it's done in the thing that, you know, is people get older, they always say, oh, I wouldn't do it that way. Or back in our day, we used to do it like this. I mean, you know. But there's a certain skill levels that have changed. They've drifted from different kind of skills because you don't need to be able to draw as well, but you got machines that draw really well. This is the whole problem with AI, too. You can describe something to a computer and it can draw a picture better than you could ever imagine. I mean, if you could hum a, a song to somebody and they could come up with a symphony, it wouldn't be so necessarily good either because all the work that goes into knowing to orchestrate a symphony, what's in the whole symphony, and you know what I mean, is there's, there's a skill level knowing every instrument in the, in, the, in the orchestra and not only like knowing them, but knowing them intimately. And if you didn't have that, didn't have to do that, would you say that you've eroded that, the quality of that work? Well, it's the same thing in the in our business. There's there's so much technology now, so many ways to to create realities that we used to do. You know, like look at the Wizard of Oz, okay, something like that. What people when they saw that, they thought that was amazing, that was real. But now we look at it as a great little piece of theater, and we love it because it still tells a good story. Okay, storytelling is still the trick to the whole thing. But the part that I'm hired to do has gotten, the background has gotten so much more complicated, creating reality. We can do it in so many ways, you know, virtual reality. And, and all these things have to be taught and learned, how to work in volumes, how to work in eye lines and all kinds of crazy things. When we do those underwater movies, you know, like didn't touch water. Uh, in both Aquaman, nobody ever went in the water. You know what I mean? But they have to move the shot underwater. So it's, yeah, how do they do that? How do they know? 
So it's it's um it's good and it's bad. I, I kind of mourn the loss with some of the older techniques and the older ways of doing things like hand drafting and things like that. And you know, and now we have 3D printers that can print something beautifully and make models that are just amazing and stuff like that. Like today it after later today I'm gonna teach a class. It's so different than the way it used to be done. It's all done digitally now. They have machines that can print the models and it's almost like magic. It can actually print the whole the whole set can come out of a machine. And a little bit of work, you clean it up and boom, you you got this this beautiful model. So I mean, uh, you have a lot to keep up with. I wouldn't worry about it if I was a kid because the schools do a fine job showing you where you got to go. It's not like you that you got to learn all these skills coming out the door, but they're you know what I mean. You have to like any profession, you really have to stay on top of it. So. Well, Bill, I, I, I got to tell you something. You, you just ruined it for my kids by saying that no one got wet during the making of Aquaman. So. When you read Aquaman, such a silly premise to live underwater, first of all. But, you know, but um, it's, you know how it is. Kids think they, they see these people fly and all that. Obviously, that's part of the fun of trying to do is teach the show. <laughs> Um, you do need to know, like, you don't have to know the methodology of a lot of stuff now. So it's yeah, yeah. It's harder and harder to teach uh, anything, I suppose. Everything has gotten so complicated. But, I mean, magic music is the same way. I mean, yeah. And, and it, I think that's 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 a that's a great segue to my next question. Uh, as I was reading the article that that Rich shared with me about you. 2020 was a very difficult time for a lot of my freelance musician friends, and I would imagine anyone in the arts, because everything came to a screeching halt with the pandemic. And uh, I spoke with a lot of my, yeah. my friends who were who were freelance musicians. I asked them, "Well, what was your takeaway from that from this moment from this hiatus when no one was working? You know, all the." The concert venues were shut down for a better part of two years. So my question to you, uh, during that, that hiatus, what were your major takeaways in terms well, of how well, did you, you maintain the artistic? Thing, you're going to laugh at me because I actually worked all the way through it because this <laughs> what we're talking on right now didn't exist, okay? So the Zoom world was created to facilitate schools and it was always there. Nobody used it because mm -hmm. you came together. And one of the beauties of, of the arts is that we work in a collaborative environment, which we call the art department or sets or costumes or people all work together, had to be separated. And the creative side of things still went forward. And we, I did a lot of work just in my room here. I never got out of the room. And it became this really weird world of Zoom and talking to people in showing work on screen, sharing computers. And it propelled, unfortunately, in a strange story, it propelled this, what Rick was talking about earlier, technology to a point where everything became this digital world. We could communicate, you know, kids go to school digitally. You communicated, there was no person, I don't know what there's something about people in a room together that creates a different environment. I know it, my daughters both are, one of them works in a company. She works for Blizzard Entertainment. She's a director of um, marketing there. And she said people are struggling with working back in the office again because they they learn to work in a certain way, but it's like they got to reteach them to be 
social again and to be collaborative in a space, like not going to the office and just everybody Zoom together. In the office, like if you're, you're across the hall, you instead of having that <laughs> Zoom with them. You know, and I imagine that happened to a lot of people. I kind of got through it. I, I was more, I was lucky. I, the thing that was hard is that when we went back to work early on, I was in London working for a year on a project and we had so many rules and so much testing and so much, we broke into little groups and all the things and, and all I, I, and I felt, but I felt so much for the music world because I'm a big, I'm like a music nut. And I, uh, I would just listen to the people trying to do that on Zoom and play group music on Zoom and record on, and it just was so hard. And, and I felt like, oh my God, we got to get these theaters back open again. Because if people can't go to the movies, we we effectively ruin that 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 shared experience, and that doesn't help our society. Because I think that's why they created storytelling was to share an experience through music or the arts. And um, without storytelling in a group where people could it just, we're not human beings. We used to sit around the campfire. We didn't have campfires 100 miles apart talking to each other. We, mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So yeah. I think that it's really the probably the damage of the pandemic more than anything. It just pushed us more into this insular society of people in their own little environments. And I hope we're getting out of that. I really do. Because that's what the movies are all about. It's like, really, that's the only reason to go to the movies. I mean, we can watch it at home, mm-hmm. but we don't, if we don't even go out of the house to had that water cooler mo- moment, you know, about what well, we saw Seinfeld last night when we were younger, people would talk about shows or whatever. You don't have that. And if you can't go to the movie, and, you know, think how much fun it is when you go to a good movie and everybody's in the audience crying or screaming at the same time. It's like a completely <laughs> different experience. That's why theater is brilliant. I mean, that's the, that is why theater will never went away. It never will. Because people love to be in that theater and hear somebody live, knowing that that's a moment that we're sharing together. I have. I want to follow up on um, your comments about AI and how it relates to where we are now. And then, kind of a sidebar on that is what the strike means for you. And I know there's kind of talk about it's partially concerned about how AI is going to affect writing and so forth. I don't know if you have any comments you want to. Or thoughts on that this is the deal ai is going to get really good okay is going to be up for us as humans to either accept it as another person out there or a part of us and we have to live with it or we're just going to have to destroy it because you can't it can't be a little bit of ai you know what i mean there can't be a little bit of it well the cat's out of the bag right i mean you can't yeah. put it back in there's certain things we can put back in. We don't put electricity back in the bag, or we don't put anything or cars back in the bag or, or airplanes back in the bag. We can't have just airplanes. We have, you know what I mean? You, I don't really know. These are huge questions, but I do know it's really, it can be very powerful. I can show you AI drawings that are mind-blowing that doesn't take human being to do. It takes a human being maybe to describe it right at this point. But a person with very little artistic ability can describe something, you know, give me a painting of a beautiful cloudy sky or something, and then tweak it and keep rolling it. And then it comes out this gorgeous thing. Write me a symphony based on, you know, a Mahler and Beethoven. I want some weird mix between the two of them. Boom. And somebody will go, oh, and then all of a sudden you get this incredible thing that will come out of a machine with all the parts and everything printed on a piece of paper. And you just got to play it. 
or not even play it, it'll play it for you. It'll synthesize the musical instruments because computers can so well do that. So I'm of the opinion that this is going to get much worse because the software will get much better because it, we, if we learn anything about computers, we don't let them get worse. We only make them get better. And they do get better. Think about what your phone does compared to any, an Addy machine when we were kids. And think about 50 to 100 or 200 years from now. What, it, it's a big issue for society. The strike right now, people are only coming to grips with the, they're seeing how it, it erodes people's jobs. It, it will. I mean, we're naive to think it won't, even though we, you might say, oh, that's not going to take the cost. It might not take the guy who shows the costumes job, but it might take the costume designer's job or the costume um, concept artist's job. It might take, it might not take the clarinet guy's job because he's going to still play the clarinet. We want to see him, but he, the paper he's reading might be written by the machine or by a machine and another person. And, and, and that the people who orchestrate stuff will be out of jobs. And then after 20 or 30 years, they'll know how to orchestrate it anymore. They'll just, they'll just punch it into the computer. It's like trying to show a kid how to read a cursive letter. Who took that away? Nobody meant to make it so kids couldn't read cursive. It just wasn't necessary. Now they're, your children, if you wrote them a letter from like the 18, 1950s, my mother's writing, they wouldn't be able to read it. I think that's part of, I don't think it's way above um, the arts. I think the society has to have to decide that. And I honestly think we're not very good at going backwards. What's the term Luddite? You know, when they when they invented the mills for and they broke up the patriarchy in, in London and in Europe and the, whenever those guys did that, people freaked out. They the Luddites were formed and they, they burned down mills because they didn't want the, the women leaving the houses to work in them. Just ruined the it was that's basically what that was about. Ruining the family, what they thought was going on, taking away their power. Well, it's no different. We're going to end up with the exact same kind of thing. Was that movie AI where they would like kill the computers and destroy them and everything? You know what I mean? They had the, the fighting in each other. It's going to, there's a little bit of, I don't know. I mean, what do you guys think? Don't you think that there, this is a scary moment for us? I think it's going to change the creative arts, how we accept it, how we deal with it. I just, I think the creative process will always require the human touch. I think that I think to so me, too. that's my hope. Mine is too, but look how much awe we are of somebody that can paint beautifully. We really are in awe of the craft, but machines can do it just perfect too now. Yeah, they but do. it was a machine. I don't know. Maybe I'm but just was, thinking backwards. But it was a machine. Exactly. Now maybe the machines will, will become, you know, like us. And ultimately that maybe that's a, an evolutionary thing that we just have to accept. I have to believe that machines will never have the human ability to feel, to have emotions and feelings. I mean, I, I want to believe that. And, and that's the one element that I think is universal in all the arts, is that we're able to convey a sense of emotion and feelings that, that can't be replicated or duplicated by a machine yet. <laughs> yeah, I, I'll just say one thing that keeps popping in my head when I hear discussions, when we have discussions like this, and we're all of the same generation, and it's of Space Odyssey, where the computer took over the spacecraft and the, the pilots, the astronauts were powerless to stop it. There was no way out of it. I, I, I think you could, you know, if computers get, get that to that level, they might say, well, we don't really need people. 
And so let's just get rid of them or not let them flourish and just let them pop away. Now that's possible. I mean, maybe that's the, that's the, you know, the Skynet version of like a Terminator and all that kind of stuff. But I think it's on a more subtle basis. I think, you know, the writers right now are on strike. Okay. So we've got the WGA on strike. And one of the main things is they don't want scripts written or edited by, you know, chat, whatever it is, some kind of one of the, the, the AI um, writing softwares. I've used those AI writing softwares. They can write really well. You can give them one of your bad emails and they can make it look really brilliant. And you can tweak it. One of the arguments is, well, so if these machines can write it better, that's the way it goes. Let's hire a machine. And I know people that would just assume hire a machine and they would a human being to do something. You know what I mean? And especially story editing, you could maybe, but is that writing? I mean, you know, we've had that argument. Forever. I mean, we got rid of the people that whale oil, or, you know, killing whales and the, those sailors. Well, I mean, those jobs are constantly going and like, and are, are the arts jobs so sacrosanct that we can't, that they wouldn't be a sacrifice too? I'd like to mm-hmm. think no, I don't, you know, but you know, for years they fought about the firemen on the train, the guy who put the coal in there and they, they, they made argue that the union fought that for like 30 years. We had to have three people on the front of a train or two people. One guy was called the fireman. Eventually, they gave up on it. You know what I mean? Because they wouldn't have fires anymore. So it's, um, I don't know. I, I, I'm Greater minds are going to have to come to grips with this. Right now, that's part of the strike. And I think what you're going to see is going to happen this fall. We're going to get the strike over eventually here. They're going to table it. Because right? I, I don't think they really, even the studios who would use it, don't even know how they can use it quite yet. Come back in 10 more years, and I think you're going to see a real issue. You know, this is just the tip of the iceberg. Look what the records did, what happened to music because of uh, streaming. I mean, look what it did to yeah. the music business in 15, 20 years. You know, the 99 cents song in the music store. How that totally, we don't, what it, how it devalued music. When I was, I have a, a whole wall of records right behind me here. And that I own that music, but kids don't even think about music that way. They don't own music. They just put on any yeah. song they can think of at that moment can just be put into their head with just a three little commands. It's a download. Any, any, and, and you don't, and you I don't just, know, you don't, you don't know who the musicians are. You don't know who's playing, who's playing, who, you know, who's playing trumpet or who's playing, who, who did the arrangements. I mean, with, with, not, with, with no longer having liner notes. I mean, you're right. So you know nothing. That has true. You have no value to it because you didn't buy it. You don't own it. You didn't, like, when we were young, we would go to a record store. We had, like, six bucks, four bucks, whatever it was to buy a record. And you went through all the stacks for hours, and you got one record. And you took that home, and you cherished that little record. That was a piece of something. That was a piece of art you bought, that song. Yeah. And you, it's the same with photography, I, 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 the way people talk about albums and stuff. Because if you take 10,000 pictures a day, 500 pictures a day, you don't really value art the same way. You don't value, value photography because it's just a throwaway thing. The images don't really mean anything anymore. And you can do the same thing with that with all art. You can create it without it having any value. Like what you're saying, it doesn't, we don't, we won't protect it the same way. I mean, I, the music business is the classic business of what happened by that. So Ron, did you have a question? I cut you off earlier. I didn't know if you had another question. I, I kind of want to bring it back to a little more of a, of a humanistic 
uh, position right now with Reveal. And, and that being, we always like to ask students who are trying to understand who they are and, and uh, to crystallize their core values as, as a person, as an artist. And one of the questions that I always ask the students, what is your why? Like, why are you doing this? You know, why are you involved in the arts? Is this, did you, is this just a fun thing for you, just a passing, a passing fancy? Or are you really, are you committed to, to being an artist? So I would ask you, uh, as we kind of close things down this, this, this session, to maybe talk about your why. Like, why did you get involved in this particular business? Like, what you know, inspires you? I love thought about, think about that. In, in my family unit growing up, I had an older brother that was really good in sports. Okay. And he was so good at him that I knew right away I should just not try to compete with him. And then when I did, as a little boy growing up, that was like the first thing, your entree, you know, with your dad who's baseball, baseball, you know, all that stuff. I, this is going to sound crazy, but my father loved Pete Fountain. He loved clarinet mm -hmm. music. He loved Al Hurt. He loved all that stuff, the Dixieland. And he just, and he used to play Artie Shaw all the time. I can remember begin to begin, you know, I already saw that version of mm -hmm. when I was a little boy and I remember my dad used to play and he said, now listen to this. And I wanted to play the clarinet when I was just a little kid. I mean, little, little kid, because I thought it would please my father because I saw, now this sounds crazy, my brother doing the same thing through sports with my dad. And I said, well, where's my role going to be in that? And, you know, everything I think, I think we all start as little creatures is about attention. Uh, how do we get our parents to pay attention to us? And I think that was my entree into music. This is in the 50s, by the way. This is a long time ago. And um, so I be, I took the clarinet up when I remember getting it when I was like in third grade, you know, and I got pretty good at it, but I let that pass. That transitioned into me was this always made me feel good. I always found a place where I could express myself and I felt good about it. As I realized I wasn't, I didn't have the chops to really get really good in the, the in the music thing because you got to go, you got to transcend the average kid level to another level, and it's a whole nother skill set. Also, my dad was a a real good carpenter, he's an engineer. Again, maybe there's all this pleasing your father stuff. And I have all the children in our family. I I got really good at the tool thing, and so I always felt like, how would I? Going back to Miami, when I fell into the theater department, I realized the thing that my that I enjoyed the most I could put together was going to college, and that was working with tools. Now, when you think about that, you never think, well, I'm going to go to college, I'm going to learn how to use a hammer. But I was able, I could take the hammer, and they were going to teach me something that was at a higher level to do with that hammer. And I fell into the, 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 the scenery guys, kids, in the theater department, as a freshman in college, quite happenstance by wandering into the shop and being able to build scenery and the other kids couldn't and they might knew the theater stuff, but I was going to learn that. And I, it was the first time in my life that I, I put two and two together and it gave me great joy. Now, to this day, I am thrilled that I can do this and I still get the same. I don't know how to explain this. I still get the same joy from my work. People ask me all the time at 70 years old, when are you going to retire? I go, I'm going to retire when people stop calling me. Stop asking me those questions. We don't retire. <laughs> Nobody I know in the arts that if somebody didn't call them at 100 years old, hey, you want to come down and play tonight? You go, okay, I'll get my, find my trumpet. I'll get down there. You know what I mean? You don't say, oh, no, I'm retired now. I don't, 
I don't play the piano anymore. Stop doing it because I'm retired. Because you didn't learn that to to make money. You, people retire from jobs that they made money on. We don't retire in our business. We it's just the phone doesn't ring anymore, and then we just kind of drift off. And that's the way it goes. You know, the window closes, and I'm okay with that. You know, I can teach a little whatever, but I'm never going to retire because I I love it. I unabashedly still love it, and I love the fact that it, it makes me feel good. And I think that's the best way. And it's almost like a drug. And I think you have to find that way to that drug as a child. If it was it was it pleasing your parents, was it pleasing you? Was there a teacher you pleased? And the final thing I would say is I, I think most human beings want to express themselves. They really are desperate for that. They don't realize that. They want to know that that the more it, it's just not them in the world, but they can they can make a point. And many people can see it through some form of expression. You can be a preacher. You can be a teacher, which is a great way to express yourself through your own personal beliefs. You can teach children. Well, it's the same way with, with being a production designer. I can express myself. I can I can do something that millions of people see and they don't even don't even know it. Like the way you put that little jazz record up there behind you or this or that. I'm really aware of all the what's when I people curate their their spaces and how they do it. But that's what I do for a living. So I, I kind of find a lot of joy in that and 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 having that that to be able to read the script and to and to tell my part of the story. It's storytelling. When you see uh, Stuart Little in New York City, that was my idea, the way he lived. People don't, that wasn't the director's, it was my idea. Or, you know, Matilda, her house she lived in. I figured that one out. There was no book that told me how, how Matilda lived, you know, or one of those kind of movies. You know, as good as it gets, as, where the artist worked, or, you know, Jack's apartment. It was really hard to figure out doing an OCD apartment. And so that was my expression. You know what I mean? Her backyard was fabulous. We've tried to recreate that in our backyard. Like a drug. I, I don't know. When she, you know, I'm, I, you must. You're, you're you're an artist. You know what I'm saying. You you. There's a certain joy you get that takes you back to your childhood. That it's the same kind of thing. It it doesn't get it doesn't get better. It doesn't get worse. It's just once you discover this, you know. I think you talk to any artist. You probably talk to lots of great artists in your in your podcast here that they would give you a similar answer. That it's it's very hard. Nobody does something they don't enjoy to do over and over again. Really, Would you, if every time you went on stage it was just total pain, you'd stop doing it eventually. You'd say, "I can't deal with this tension or this pressure." And we hear stories of artists that just can't do it because it wasn't fun. You know, and they brought up the worst in their childhood, not the best. So I mean, um, it was that was my that was my entree into the arts was maybe just trying to please my my parents or my father or something. Well, Bill, I want to thank you so much for your wisdom and your time this afternoon. And you've given us some great material for feeding the starving artist. Well, I hope I, I hope I help those kids. Look at it. It's not so hard guys out there. I mean, you just have to love what you do and just be a, a good human being and it'll work. I mean, really it's simple, simpler than you think. So. That's it. One of the things that uh, Rick and I enjoy about doing this, there's old saying when, when you give unconditionally, you get it back tenfold. And I can tell you this 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 podcast that we did today, I have learned so much from you, and uh, so appreciate you sharing your 
your thoughts with us and, and your ideas and your wisdom. And, and it is wisdom. I mean, I think, I think I think we're all about the same age. I think Rick, you just turned seventy. I did. Bill, you're already seventy, and I and I'll be seventy in December. So we're all kids of nineteen fifty three. Yeah, same here. Let's hear it for was, the that new was a good year. <laughs> but uh, thank you so much, Bill. This is just this has been incredible. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, we really appreciate it. Yeah, I'm uh, all the success. I'm sure it's gonna it's gonna do good. I'll thank come you. back in the second season. Thank you very much, and best to Kim, and uh, give her a big hug from me and Susie. I will. So thank you. And I, the family. I watch your family too. That looked like you guys had a good 70th birthday party. We had a blast. It was a big, big time was had by all. One of your daughters is painting really well. She wants to be a plein air painter. She goes out in the woods and she paints. I think that's cool. I know. She gave up her medical career to be a painter. How about that? I don't I'm sure that had a controversy somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> well, she loves it. So who am I to say? Yeah, no. Well, at least she, her father's in the yard. So I mean, it was a little easier. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Okay. Hey, Bill, thanks again, and wow. we'll talk soon. Okay, I'll talk later. Okay, bye, right. bye. Take care. Bye bye. Bye bye. This has been another presentation of Feeding the Starving Artist with Dr. Rick Goodstein, Dr. Ron McCurdy. We'll see you next time. <laughs>